open the black hardcover Bibles from the back. It's uh, page 1014, 1 Peter chapter 1. And we'll be reading starting in verse 13. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13. Again, page 1014 in some of your Bibles. And as we read this this morning, remember this is God's word. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. This is God's word. You may be seated. Well, good morning. It's nice to see you. Uh, My name is Luke. I'm one of the pastors here, and I'm excited to open up God's Word with you this morning. Uh, We're in our third week of a study of the book of 1 Peter, and this will take us through about Christmas time. Uh, We'll just study a new chunk of the Bible uh, each week, and so hopefully if you're here and you're newer to the Bible, um, this will at least give you some understanding of one particular part of it, and so I'm, I'm thankful that you're here with us. This letter of 1 Peter was written by the Apostle Peter, one of Jesus' closest disciples. Uh, Peter was the one who had betrayed Jesus three times uh, upon uh, Jesus being crucified and then becomes really the pillar and the leader of the church. And uh, so he writes this letter to a group of Christians that are scattered uh, throughout what is modern day Turkey, and he's writing them to encourage them. And we actually get the purpose of his letter in chapter 5, verse 12, if you want to turn over there for a moment. Uh, he tells us that he, he wrote uh, this letter, and, and this guy Silvanus, uh, who's a faithful friend of his, delivered it. Um, and he says at the end of verse 12, here's the purpose of his letter, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God stand firm in it. And so the point of this letter is, is Peter is trying to help uh, the people of God who are scattered, who are facing all kinds of persecution and difficulty and suffering and trials. He's trying to help them stand firm in the true grace of God. Stand firm, not back down, not give in, not cave into the pressure of the world, um, but to stand firm in the grace of God. So that's the theme of the book, and that's really uh, what we experience as we read and we study through it. What we've looked at the last two weeks, though, is the wonder of salvation. That word salvation simply means rescue. It means to be delivered, to be brought out of a dangerous, uh, difficult, dark situation and into the light. And so that's what salvation is. And, And Peter has just been amazed at the salvation we've experienced. And so that's what he's written about in verses 1 through 12. And in the first two verses of chapter 1, he talked about that you were chosen before the foundation of the world by God and set apart by Him and and that you've been sprinkled, cleansed from your sin by the blood of Christ. And then he begins and he goes in from verses 3 through 12 in what in the original language is just one long run-on sentence. It just communicates his excitement, his passion. And he says, if you just look at this in 
in verse 3, he says, according to God's great mercy, he's caused you to be born again to a living hope. So you're made new if you trust in Christ. You have a new life, a new heart with him, a new hope through his resurrection. He says in verse 4, there's an inheritance now that's waiting for you in heaven. It's imperishable. It's undefiled. It's unfading. Nothing can stop it. God is keeping that for you. He says in verse 5, not only is God saving that for some future day, but right now he's keeping you. He's guarding you so that you can't even get away from him. That's how much he loves you. He says that's important because there's times when you're going to have trials and difficulty and that tests your faith and helps determine whether it's genuine. And and even in the midst of that, you can rejoice. And then last week, we looked at what Peter writes in verses 10 to 12 where Peter says, the Old Testament prophets who told about Jesus, they were so blown away at at what they were writing that they were seeking and inquiring, going, God, help us. Are we going to get to see and experience this now? We would so love to see this. And it says uh, that that they found out that it wasn't for them, but it was actually for us, for the, the recipients of this letter. And so the wonder of salvation is that all these people who wrote the Old Testament would have loved to experience it, and they never got to. But we did. And he says in verse 12, this salvation is so amazing that even the angels long to look into it. Like there's, there's never a moment where an angel doesn't stop going, what? What? These sinners get to know God like that? Like what? Whoa! This is mind-boggling. And so Peter wants us to, to read those first 12 verses and just marvel at the wonder of God's grace to us, His kindness to us. But then it raises the question, now What? Right? There weren't any commands the last few weeks of looking at this. There's just statements of what God's done, indicatives. Here, here's, here's what's, there's no commands yet. So, so now what? What, what? How are we supposed to live in light of this? There's all these moments in life that you have this great experience or this great hope fulfilled, and then you, it happens and you go, okay, okay now what? So, so Christmas morning is like that every year, right? There's all this anticipation and all this buildup, and then you get the presents, and it's all unwrapped, and... You know, if you have kids that get up at the crack it on like mine do, it's like 7.30 and you're done with Christmas morning and you're like, now what? I think about the first job I got in ministry. I was hired as, a, as an intern at a church and I was so excited. It was a job I had, had hoped for and worked for and prayed for. And I got there the first day and my supervisor wasn't there yet. And so I was like there before him and, one of the, and, and I just got there. I was so excited, so eager. And so I sat down at my desk what do I do now? I felt like George Costanza. You know, like I needed the Penske file, someone to hand me that. And I mean, I just, I had no idea. It was like, now, what do I do now? And so we've experienced this amazing grace, this thing that's better than you could ever hope for. Now what? Now what? Well, that's what the rest of this book is going to tell about. Peter's going to start to apply this incredible truth and say that if this kind of experience of God's grace and goodness has happened to you, here's how you're going to begin to live. Here's how you're going to stand firm in this life. And so verse 13 really becomes a transition verse for the whole book. It actually sort of sets in motion all of that we're, uh, all that we're going to study and talk about. So I want to dig into that. Before I do, though, let me just take a moment and, and let's pray and let's ask God to work um, in our study here this morning. 
Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that it's living and active. Thank you that it's true and trustworthy. Thank you that it tells us the truth about who you are and who we are. And God, we pray that it would, um, that we'd have our eyes open and our hearts open to see and hear um, what you have to tell us this morning. And we pray uh, eager to know you and to learn from you. In Jesus' good name, amen. So as I said, uh, verse 13 is really this key transition verse. It, It sets in motion the whole rest of the book. And here's what Peter writes in verse 13. He says, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now I want to just take that kind of phrase by phrase for a moment. The first word there is therefore. Now, uh, some of you that are familiar with the Bible, you know this, but for those of you who are newer to this, let me give you a really helpful idea for when you read the Scripture. Anytime you come across the word therefore, there's a question you should ask. The question you should ask every time you read it is, what is the therefore, therefore? Okay? Therefore means in light of what I just said, I'm going to, so what is that, what's the therefore, therefore? What just came before this? And so that makes us look up to what we just talked about, the wonder of salvation. Peter says, in light of that amazing salvation, here's what I want you to do. And he says the first thing, preparing your minds for action. Prepare your minds for action. It could also be translated, girding up the loins of your mind. Uh, girding up the loins is a phrase we sometimes talk about, or you, maybe you've heard that. But the idea of it is uh, that, especially in this day, um, men would wear robes. And if a man was going to move fast or if a man was going to do some hard work, um, often he would gird up the loins of his robe. He would uh, kind of tuck some of it into his belt so that he wouldn't trip, so that he wouldn't get dirty. It would be a little bit like roll up your sleeves and get to work, right? Do you know, by the way, the reason you're... Gentlemen, when you have a suit, I don't know if... I actually do have a suit. Um, and it has buttons on the outside of the, of the sleeves. And the reason for that is because men used to roll up even the, the sleeves of their coats when they didn't want to get it caught on something. They didn't want to get snagged. They didn't want to get hung up. And Peter here is saying, there's a lot of things you could get snagged on. There's a lot of things you could get caught up in. There's a lot lot of loose ends that that you need to tie up. That's another way of saying it. Tie up the loose ends of your mind. He's saying prepare your mind for action. Have Have an eagerness, a readiness. In light of this incredible good news you've experienced, don't get complacent. Prepare to act on it. It reminds us of what we read in Exodus chapter 12 when the people of Israel are are going through the Exodus experience. And when they're eating the Passover, um, God tells them, hey, this is not going to be a casual, extended, take as long as you want meal. You need to eat this ready to eat and run. In this manner you shall eat it with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. And you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. Reminds us that to follow the Lord is to be ready to obey Him, ready to follow Him at a moment's notice. Prepare your minds for action. And then he says, and being sober-minded. This, as we would think about, the idea of sober, right? If, if, if someone's drunk, they're not thinking clearly, they're influenced by things that they normally wouldn't be. To be sober is to be clear-minded, to see things as they actually are. And he says, prepare, again, this focus on your mind. There's a mindset that you've got to have if you're going to be a follower of Christ, if you're going to stand firm. You've got to prepare for action, be sober-minded. And then here's the command, set your hope, 
fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Peter says, there's a day coming. There's a day coming when Jesus Christ is coming back and His glory will be revealed in its fullness. You'll experience the fullness of His unmerited, undeserved grace to you and, and, and set your hope fully on that. This is a comprehensive view. This is saying your whole life is going to change if you become a follower of Christ. Because your whole hope is going to be focused on that. And if our whole hope is focused on, on pursuing Christ and on knowing Him and, and living for the last day, there's going to be some ways that we live. And so that's what he begins to unpack in verse 14. And that's really what we get through the rest of the book. But there's, there's a central idea um, that, that we're commanded to in this particular passage. And so that uh, comes in verse 15. Let's, let's read verses 14 and 15, though, together. And we'll get this main idea um, for today. He says, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. The command here, this, this first command, in light of having our minds set to, to pursue the Lord, this first command is be holy. That's verse 15. As he who called you is holy, you also be holy. Now, some of you grew up in a church environment. You grew up reading the Bible. You hear the word holiness. You know instantly what that means. Others of you, 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 have, you have no idea. You, you've heard the phrase holier than thou or something like that, but, but you don't really know what that means. So let me help you with this. The word holy means to be set apart, to be distinct. To be fully righteous. Another kind of religious type word would be consecrated. Right? And so Abraham Lincoln, um, in the Gettysburg Address, consecrated that field. It set it apart. It was, a, it was always going to be a, a remembered field. It was special. It wasn't ordinary. And this command is, is for God's people to be holy. To be righteous. There's some other descriptions we get of what this is. And the first one is uh, that holiness means obedience. So look at verse 14. As obedient children, don't be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. So part of, uh, of holiness is obedience. It means God tells us to do certain things and we do them. God says jump and we say how high. And not only do we say how high, but then we jump. Right? And this is what it is to be a disciple. This is what it is to be a follower of Christ. You hear God's voice, and you do what He says. You hear His voice, you do what He says. You read His Word, you do what He says. That's what it is to be a follower of Christ. Now, you do that because you trust Him, and because you love Him, and because you believe that when He tells you to do something, it's for your good and for your blessing. But that's what, that's what holiness is. It's obedience. It, it's saying, Lord, I'll, I'll do what you say as obedient children. The second thing that we see about holiness here is that it is a rejection of former passions. It's a rejection of natural passions. He says, verse 14, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Saying all of us have a natural way, a natural tendency. And it, it, some, a lot of it comes from within and some of it comes from how we were raised and some of it comes from the environment we've been in. And, some, and there's all these factors, but, but, but much of it 
is, is ignorance. It's ignorant of who God is and ignorant of what God expects. And it's selfish and it's sinful and it's wrong. And, and, and we're not even use the words sin, but, but it just, we know that we don't even live up to our own standard. And, and Peter here says, don't be conformed. Don't be molded into that old image that you used to have. Right? Brian Ring just shared his story about how it was, it was stealing that, that the Lord used to get his attention, right? And this would say, hey, Brian, don't, be conf- don't go back to stealing. Be honest. Right? So, so it's, it's rejecting these old ways. And, and so we could go around the room and, and share all of, the, all of the different sins we commit. In fact, let's do that. I mean, we could, we could talk about that. And, 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 and some, but he's saying, reject the natural way that you typically would think. Live in a new, fresh, godly, biblical way. So it's obedience, it's, it's rejecting these former passions. Uh, we also see that it's comprehensive. Look at verse 15. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. How much? All, right? He doesn't say be holy in some of your conduct. Be holy in most of your conduct. Uh, be holy when you're at church. Be holy when there's a pastor around. Right, I can't tell you how many times someone, you know, sh- says all kinds of expletives, expletives. Sorry, pastor. Like, I've never heard that word before. And, and like, oh, oh, so now you're supposed to obey God? I mean, I, I got, just because of me, I'm not, I'm not that special. But God sees everything, this says. And so we're to be holy in all of our conduct. Oh. Right, I mean, does that feel heavy to anyone else? Everything. That means not just when it's convenient, not just when you feel like it, not just when it advances your purposes all the time. If you read something, if you hear something from the Scripture, God says do it, you do it always. So holiness means not just avoiding bad stuff, but also doing all the right stuff. It's comprehensive. We'll talk more about that in the coming weeks. But I I hope we feel some of the weight of that. It's not just what happens in the big moments. It's the accumulation of all the little moments. It's accumulation of of a million different little things, little opportunities to trust the Lord and to follow Him and to imitate His character. It's comprehensive. We also see here that holiness, obedience, is imitating God. See verse 15? But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy. In other words, in the same way that God who called you is holy, be holy. Imitate him. Uh, Verse 16, since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. So this is an imitation of God. We are God's children, it says at the beginning of verse 14. Obedient children. And as such, we should obey God. We should imitate him. That's part of what holiness is. Uh, Ephesians, the book of Ephesians, chapter 5, talks about this in verse 1. It says, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. Holiness is imitating God. Right? And, and children do this naturally, right? Children love to imitate things. And so there'll be times where I'll hear one of my daughters in the playroom giving announcements, <laughs> like they hear when they come to church. And they're giving announcements. Or, 
or Caitlin, my uh, three-year-old, about a year ago, uh, my mother and father-in-law were in town, and my mother-in-law has what you would call a dumb phone, right? There's smartphones like iPhones and droids, and right? she's got a dumb phone. You know, all, all it does is call and text people, right? So if you have a dumb phone, no, that's fine. That's okay. But Caitlin wouldn't think so. See, she had B's phone, Grandma B, and, and since she's used to my phone, she, uh, she, would, she had it, and she was like... <laughs> and after three or four swipes and nothing happened, there was just this look of disgust, like... Ugh. I'm no use for this, right? Why, why did she think that's how a phone worked? Because she sees me. She imitates me. She, she's a child, right? We're to imitate God. That's what it is to be holy. Now, you've got to get this. This is crucial. This is key. If you miss this, you miss something really big, okay? Don't, don't miss what I'm about to say. You've got to always get the order that Peter presents this right. Okay? So verses 1 through 12 are Peter saying, look at this amazing salvation you have. And verses 13 through 21 go, now be holy. But many people, most people, and I think it's because the default mode of our hearts is this way, most people reverse the process. Most people think, if I'm holy... If I obey, if I imitate God, then I'll get to experience salvation. And so if you're here today and you're exploring Christianity, but you're going, ah, I just don't know. I don't know if God could ever accept me. Part of what the lie that you've come to believe, and all of us believe this in a natural way, is you believe, I got to clean some stuff up in my life first. I got to get a little bit more holy. You wouldn't use that word, but that's what you're saying. And then God will accept me. But that's not how this works. Right? There's some things, the order, it's always the same, right? It's always lightning, then thunder. It, 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 thunder never happens without that. It, it, it's never reversed. I think about the moment when my kids were born, you know, and they emerge, and then it, it feels like forever, but it's just a very short period of time, and you're waiting to hear that breath, right? And then... <gasps> right? And, they, and you're like, yes, it's the only time you're happy to hear them crying. Well, that, it always follows that order. You're always born and then you breathe. You don't ever breathe first. And it's the same thing here. You, you ne- it's never do the right thing and then God will accept you. It's always he's accepted you. He's loved you. He's set, uh, he, he's guarding you. He's protecting you. Therefore, Go live this way. Do you get that? That is absolutely critical that you get it. But God is calling us to be holy, calling us to obey, calling us to imitate him. The question then is, what would motivate us to obey him? What would motivate us to do it? And get this, God created everything. God has authority over everything. God has absolute power to say, do it. And we should say, okay, Jump, how high? I mean, it just it, we, don't, we shouldn't need an explanation. We shouldn't need a, well, here's really why, right? Don't you love when your kids, you know, you tell them to do something. Well, why? Because I told you. Now, when you do that, 
That, that, you could do that. You have the authority to do that. God doesn't do that to us. God says, I want you to obey me. Why? Let me give you some reasons. The Bible's filled with lots of different reasons. And Peter gives a number of reasons here in this passage. Um, and the first one, we've kind of already hit on, but the, I'm going to give you four of these reasons. Um, the first of these four reasons is, that should motivate us is because God is our Father. We should want to obey Him because God is our Father, right? So verse 14, as obedient children, you, it's saying you are God's children if you trust Him. It's not saying if you're God's children. It's saying you are. God is your Father. Verse 17 says... If you call on Him as Father. Peter here is saying, you believe in the Lord, you love Him, God is your Father, you pray to Him, therefore imitate Him. You should want to bear the family resemblance. All of us get genes from our parents. Right? And we get these genes and some are dominant and some are recessive and I'm not sure how all of that works. But they, they determine certain elements of how we look and what we do. Right? So, for example, um, go ahead and fold your arms. Some of you are already doing this. Go ahead and fold your arms. How many of you have your left arm over your right? How many of you have your right over your left? How many of you will never raise your hand ever? Okay? All right. So you, you got it. You know, it feels right. feels right. Now switch. right? No, that doesn't feel right. Right? And we have all these genes. They tell you what the color of your hair is going to be and whether you have a widow's peak and whether you have attached ear lobes and, and the color of your eyes and whether you can curl your tongue. Those of you who can't are like, dang it, I can't. Right? But, but here's the thing. God is your father and you have DNA from him. And your DNA from him is that you would be holy. And so when we walk in disobedience, when we say, eh, God, I don't feel like it, it's like having our arms folded the wrong way. We're not functioning the way we're created to function. Now, what happens is we've spent enough time that way that it feels pretty comfortable. But, but in reality, we're not living out who we're made to be. So we should obey because we are God's children. He is our Father. Second reason we should obey is because God, it says here, is an impartial judge. So God for sure is Father, and and there's the love and the care and the concern that goes along with that. He's also a judge. And so look at verse 17. And if you call on Him as Father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourself with fear throughout the time of your exile. So He's just said, be holy. Now He's saying... There's a, your father is also a judge. That word judges is a present tense word. It means God is in the process of judging. God is always evaluating. God is always looking. Um, so this is not talking about a future judgment that's coming. This is talking about God is, is currently, right now, judging. He's evaluating. He's analyzing. And it says he judges impartially. So here's what that means. It means without favoritism. So what this means is that God is your father and he loves you and he adores you, but he can't give you favoritism, right? He can't make 
right? Favoritism is when you let a family member, you let a close friend, you let them play by different rules than everybody else, right? That, that's partiality. This saying, God, God's not like that. God's, God's impartial. He doesn't show favoritism, not even to his children. And so this means in light of that, that, that should motivate us, it says, to conduct ourselves with fear throughout our time of exile. You see that, verse 17? So conducting yourself with fear, it's not fear of punishment. It's not fear of ultimate judgment. It's fear of displeasing Him now. It's a desire to honor Him, to please Him. So I think about the times when I was a baseball player as a kid, and I had a number of times when I played for a team that my dad was one of the coaches. So he has this dual role. He's father and he's coach. And we've all heard of stories where the coach's kid got special treatment, whatever. Not with my dad. He may have been harder on me, perhaps. Um, but, but I think at least he, was, he wasn't showing any favoritism. There was a sense of, I love you, you're my son, but if you're not playing well enough, if you're not working hard enough, you're going to get benched. It doesn't mean I don't love you anymore, but it just means I, I, I can't play favorites. Same thing's true with God. He's saying, I love you. You're my child. But if you walk in disobedience, there's going to be consequences. So there's times of discipline that the Lord allows into our life. Times of, of, of rebuke where we sense that we just aren't experiencing the closeness with Him that we would long to. And a lot of it's because we've walked away. We're not playing by the rules, so to speak. And so God is a, is a judge, an impartial judge. And that should lead us, it says, to, to fear. Now, get this. Again, fear is not fearing punishment. It's fearing displeasing him. So I think about my wife, Molly. I, I don't have any fear at this moment um, that she's going to, like, leave me. And, and some of you have that fear. And I, it breaks my heart that you have that fear. And, and that, if that's a legitimate potential reality in, in your life, you know the weight of that. And, and, and so I'm, I'm sympathetic to it. I don't have that weight. But that doesn't mean I don't still try to please her. That doesn't mean I don't want to let her down. Of course I don't. That's part of love. And so when we love God, we love Him because He's our Father. We bear His likeness and we want to honor the DNA that He's given us. But we also realize that, that we need to live in, in a way that's going to bring Him delight now. Right? Think about what you do if you're a parent or if you're a grandparent. I mean, you love your kids unconditionally. But doesn't it delight your heart when they do what you tell them? And when they don't, right? Especially when you're at the store and it's like, No! Right? What, what do you feel like? Oh, no. Right? And you just don't want anyone to see you. It's not that you don't disown your child, right? It's, I'm going to leave you here. You might say that, but you never would. <laughs> but but your, your heart breaks. That's how God feels. So that's, that's what's going on here. It's a motivation saying you love the Lord, right? Do what He says. If you love Him, obey His commandments. It, it makes a lot of sense. This fear of the Lord is a common concept. It appears a number of times in the Scripture. Uh, one is in Acts chapter 9, 
after the church has experienced some discipline from God. And it says that the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. So you get that? There's, there's fear. God, we want to please you. We want to do the right thing. But there's also the comfort of knowing He loves us. Same thing in 2 Corinthians 7. It says, Since we have these promises... Beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. That's almost the exact point that Peter is making. Thought I had a. We good? Thought I had a turntable up here for a minute. Nope, I don't. Anyway, I don't know where to reconnect with that, but <laughs> this, is a, this is almost the exact same point that, that Peter's making. Since you have this promise, in light of this wonderful salvation, don't be conformed to your old ways, but, but live holy in the fear of God. Be motivated by a desire to please Him. So the two reasons we looked at so far, because God's Father, because God is judge. Here's a third reason. Because God gave His most valuable thing. To make you holy. Verse 18. Knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Isn't it interesting that the things we would say are most valuable, silver and gold, Peter here describes as perishable. That's going to end up in a trash heap. But, but God rescued you. God ransomed you. God, God redeemed you out of this old life of, of sin and folly and misery. He rescued you out of that. And He used the most precious thing He could ever use. The blood of His only Son. See, Jesus Christ didn't die on that cross just as an example, though it is an example. He died as a substitute in our place. It was His blood. He was the spotless Lamb of God, the one who was always perfectly obedient. And His blood was poured out to cleanse us so that we could become holy. It's the most precious thing. And so God here is saying, don't treat it lightly. I I had two friends in high school. One was Bobby Gibson, and he drove... I had more than two friends, but... Two of my friends. Bobby Gibson drove a Mustang convertible, which no high schooler should ever have. And Mark Torrey drove a, an old Honda Civic hatchback. And I, and I drove Bobby's car at times, and I drove Mark's car at times. Which one do you think I was more careful with? Why? Because the Mustang, because it's precious. He's saying, don't, don't just tread on the blood of Christ. God has given you this most sacred, important thing. Honor it. Obey Him. Don't don't, don't casually dismiss it. So because He's Father, because He's a judge, and we want to please Him, and, and because He's given us His most precious thing, but here's one more reason why we should obey, is because God has planned and done good, only good for you for all eternity. God has planned and done only good for all eternity. This blood of Christ didn't just come about sort of happenstance. God didn't get flummoxed and go, 
Oh no, they sinned in the garden. What am I going to do? It says in verse 20, He, that's Jesus, was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you. He's saying, forever God has planned to redeem you. There was redemption before you even had the need for it. That's what it is to be foreknown. Before anything had ever happened, God set this into motion. For all eternity, that was His plan. And then it says, verse 21, And through Him were believers in God who raised Him from the dead and gave Him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Wayne Grudem summarizes this verse. He's a commentator on this. He says, The God whom Christians fear is also the God they trust forever. The God who has planned and done for them only good from all eternity. So God, listen, God is not saying, Obey me, because I'm on a power trip, and this is what I want you to do. He's going, I'm your father. I know you want to please me. I've given you the most valuable thing I could ever give to make this happen. And I'm doing for you good. That's always been my plan. And even my call to tell you to obey is good. Right? Listen, the scripture all over the place says that God is holy. It also says that in God's presence is fullness of joy. So one of the challenges we have in pursuing holiness is we feel like, well, if I'm going to really obey God all the time, like in every circumstance, I'm going to try to do what He wants, that's, that's not going to be very fun. I'm not going to be very happy. God is the holiest being in the universe and the happiest. And when He says, obey me, Follow me. Trust me. Do what I tell you. What he's saying is, I'm inviting you into a beautiful, joyful experience of how you were made to live. Come into it. But we, we often resist it, don't we? And, and just to be very clear here, the Bible is under no expectation, nor am I, that that anyone can perfectly live obediently to God. You, you can't. That's why you need the blood of Jesus. And yet we're called to do it. And, and so I've reflected on this in, in preparing to teach it and, and going, why do, why do we resist this? More specifically, why do, why do I resist this? I think there's a couple reasons. I, I wrote down three. I'm sure there's more. Um, for some, there's an ignorance of what God expects. So some of you just, you just don't know. I mean, you've never been exposed. You don't know all that the Bible commands. And so there's no way you could obey it because you don't know what it is. But, but for me, I think it's more of a, I was just naturally and, and just probably through the fault, no, no one's fault but my own, as an early follower of Christ, I was, uh, I said I'm saved by grace, but in reality I believed that if I was good, then God would love me. And so I lived with a performance kind of mentality. And over the last seven or eight years in particular, the, the power of God's grace has exploded into my heart. And I'm so thankful for that. But, but what has happened at times, and I'm thankful to say that this isn't always what happens, but what I'm, I'm sometimes prone to do is to have a, an attitude that takes that casually. 
theologians would call it antinomian, anti-law. The idea of, well, God knows I'm a sinner. God knows I struggle with that. And, you know, he gave his son and his son, you know, and past, present, and future sins, and, and all that's true. But, but, if, but if we use it as an excuse to sin, it's wrong. So we have to re-understand the, the power and the preciousness of what God's given us. So I, I, I'm trying to re, re-embrace that. There's another reason why I resist this, is that sin is fun. And the pursuit of, of radical obedience feels exhausting. Doesn't it? I mean, sin, sin is easy. It comes natural. Obedience is difficult. I've got to analyze things. I've got to think about my motives. And, and, it, and, and listen, it only gets harder. Because the longer you walk with the Lord, the more, the more of your weakness gets exposed. Right? And at the beginning, you, you only care about the big stuff. Like, well, I haven't killed anybody, right? And by the end, you know, by the end of your life, you're going, even my thoughts, I mean, like that needs to come in line with what God wants. And, and that's hard work, and it feels exhausting. And, and, and it's, easy, it's easy to drift into sin. But you never drift into holiness. And so it's hard work. And I think at times when it's just like, I just don't feel like it. And so it's then, and this is the third thing, I, I, I forget my identity. Forget who God says I am. And that's what I need to re-remember. That's what we need to remember. And, and here's the identity. It's in the beginning of verse 14. As obedient children. That really could summarize this entire point. This entire sermon could be summed up in two words, obedient children. God is calling us to obey. He's calling us to do what he says, but he's calling us to do it as children who are loved by him and who love him. That is our identity. And if I will embrace that identity, if you will embrace that identity, you will embrace obeying him as a path to joy, as a path to grace, as a path to understanding and knowing more of him, having closer relationship with him. You will want to pursue that. So will I. And I love that it says, doesn't say, become obedient children. It says, as obedient children. You already are if you're in Christ. So it's a call to become who you already are. Let's embrace that call. Let's remind ourselves of who we are. And let's pursue the Lord. Let me pray. Father, thank you so much for this opportunity to reflect on your holiness and on the call that you've given to us. And and Lord, I'm so thankful that you don't just call us and command us to obey you, but you give us motivation to do it. And in that motivation, you remind us of your love for us, your goodness to us. You remind us that you gave your son, Jesus Christ, as a substitute for us to cleanse us and to make us holy. And so God, help us to become who you've already declared us to be. Help us to do that in light of your great and precious blood. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.